you'll notice in the theme of our singing this morning is this reality of God's presence and comfort from God's presence and requesting that he abide with us. And that was very intentional as we look now at the second chapter of Haggai in our series in the Minor Prophets. It's exactly what we are going to see happening with the people of God in this section. Last week we started our series in the Minor Prophets looking at the last three books of the Old Testament and we gave some canonical context, meaning where do these books fit in the canon of Scripture, why are they where they are, and then we also talked about more of the immediate context, the things that necessitated the ministry of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, which are the three books, of course, that we're going to be looking at for the next few months or weeks or wherever the Lord leads us. (laughs) So to recap, just very briefly as we get into this next chapter, the people of God had returned from exile in Babylon. Okay, As a result of their failure to keep the covenant, God allowed the nation of Babylon to overthrow and take into captivity the nation of Israel, as they did with many other nations as well. So the people now have been released from captivity and are allowed to return back home to Jerusalem. And when they get there, as we can read in Ezra and Nehemiah, they're all fired up about rebuilding the temple. Okay, there's all this energy and excitement, but as time passes, and not very much time, they get distracted. They start to work on their own lives, to build their own houses, to be concerned with meeting their own needs, and they neglect the worship of God, which is now visually represented in the incomplete temple. We talked about the fact that they gave in to fear from surrounding nations, kind of putting pressure on the government, saying, you better be careful If this temple is built, you don't know what's going to happen. So this is where we drop in to these three books of the Bible. The situation is that the people of God had neglected worship of God, and God is calling them back to repentance and obedience. And the one thing that we talked about last week was that the fact that Haggai now, in his ministry to the people, is a messenger of the Lord. And we talked about what that meant, that he does not come with his own message but rather he speaks as God has spoken to him. He is authoritatively representing God and communicating God's message to the people. But one thing we didn't spend a lot of time on was the exact content of that message. Obviously, we talked in general terms about the encouragement to come back to God, to repent of sin, but I want to mention one verse from last week as we get into this week because it's going to create a link to help you kind of lock things together in your mind. Listen to Haggai chapter 1, verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, and here it is, I am with you, declares the Lord. I'm with you. This is a message that was meant to be an encouragement, a motivation, a strengthening message to the people. Their association with the temple was the presence of God. So God dwelt in the temple. Just as in the early history of Israel, God's presence was in the tabernacle, then it's in the temple. So as they are living now in Jerusalem, the temple is not completed. It is lying unfinished. And the thought process starts to be, perhaps God isn't here because the temple's not here. So where would God be? But God reassures his people. Despite the physical condition of the building, despite the fact that the walls aren't up, the roof ain't on, the 
plumbing isn't installed. They probably didn't even have plumbing. But you get the point. It was unfinished. But God says, despite that, I am with you. Which should tell us something, right? It should tell us that the physical structure of the, the, the literal building is not the main point. This is a spiritual reality that God is confronting in his people. Did he care about the physical structure of the temple? Of course. But that's not primary. He's concerned with their worship. He's concerned with their hearts. And so he calls them back. He says, get to it. Finish the work you started. I am with you. I will motivate you. I will empower you by my very spirit. And this is where we pick up now in Haggai chapter 2. God has promised to be with them that he will not abandon them, and we're going to see this work itself out now in the first nine verses of this chapter. So open your Bibles, please, if you would, to Haggai chapter 2. If you don't know where this is, that's all right. If you can find the book of Matthew in the New Testament, just turn left three books and you'll find the book of Haggai. So I invite you to follow along as we read chapter 2, and I'll read verses 1 through 9. Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong. O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord, be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea, and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Would you pray with me as we begin? Lord, even in these short nine verses that we just read, the refrain, the Lord of hosts, comes several times. And you are the Lord of hosts, the sovereign God of the universe. You command the armies of heaven. You command the natural elements in the world around us. And you command our hearts. And when this reality sinks in, it should produce such thankfulness that you are not a tyrant. (laughs) Everything you do is motivated by your holiness and your character, and you are always and only good. And so when we read, Lord, that you are the Lord of hosts, you are the God of all creation, we do not need to cower in fear, uncertain of what you will do, but we can rest in you and in the promise of your presence because you are faithful. 
Father, we ask for help as we look at this section of Scripture now. We do not only want to see this as history and objective fact, but we want to see this as truth that will warm our hearts and give us affections for you and for your Son and for your Spirit. So God, come and do this work. Do not leave us to ourselves, but open our understanding that we would see wondrous things from your law. Father, give grace in the preaching and grace in the hearing, and would Jesus Christ be praised. Amen. Now, as we start in the second chapter of this book, we are once again confronted with some dates, some calendar information as we start chapter 2. And if you're like me and like most people, sometimes when we read these dates, we kind of just blow over them because... We don't really follow the same calendar. This was B.C., you know, so the dates are a little weird. We're talking 500s and months and dates and what's the point, right? It's kind of like sometimes when we read genealogies, you kind of just, okay, this person begat this person. This was his dad. This was his grandpa. What's the point? (laughs) Well, the point here is that we need to understand that there's significance to every word of the Lord, and that includes the calendar. And maybe one of the reasons that we skip over this is because we don't relate in the same way to the calendar as the people of God did. Now, some of us are very tied to our calendars. We do not move without it being scheduled. And some of us maybe need a little encouragement to use a calendar once in a while. So we do relate to the calendar, right? We do have schedules. But in the nation of Israel, there were, throughout their calendar year, many observances and feasts and festivals and times of traveling or coming together and it was very significant and oftentimes these calendar events corresponded with some of the natural rhythms in their life something like harvest time or planting they were an agrarian culture right they planted crops they raised livestock so oftentimes God in his wisdom would correspond these calendar events to match up with natural rhythms in their life just for example in chapter 1 of Haggai, when he brings his first of these four messages from the Lord, he's talking about why they've had such a hard time. There's been drought. God has withheld the dew. And it's no coincidence that he delivers that message when he does. It is the first day of the sixth month, which would have been early September, according to our calendar. They were right in the middle of harvest time. So God intentionally brings a message to the people that says, you wonder why stuff's been so hard while you're planting 100 bushels but you're only harvesting 50, this kind of stuff? That would have really resonated because they were right in the middle of that. So there's no accident with God in the timing of his delivery. This isn't random in any way. And when we read these dates and stuff, it's really a good idea if you have the resources to find out why God is delivering this message at this time. And we see the same thing now in Haggai chapter 2. This message was delivered on the 21st day of the seventh month, so almost two months after the first message. This would have been late October, according to our calendar. The people would have been just finishing celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, as it's called. And that's significant for a couple reasons. First of all, they would have been together 
the people of God would have come together to celebrate this, which would have made it much easier for Haggai to deliver this message without having to go around and saying it 50 times. He can say it once because the people are gathered together. But more than just being convenient, it was a providential time for this message to come to the people. The Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, was meant to help the nation of Israel remember the mighty works of God, specifically as it referred to the wilderness wanderings as they had come out of the nation of Egypt. So they would look back, they would remember what God had done, they would recite things from the law, from the Torah, and encourage one another. Interestingly, they would also have to sleep outside for several days in homemade tents or you know, made of sticks or something. And that was meant to remind them in a very tangible way of what their forefathers went through and how God provided for them and protected them as they entered into the promised land. This was also a very natural time for them to remember, under the category of God's mighty works in their past, the building and the dedication of the first temple of Solomon's temple, which was dedicated and finished during the same time of year, during the Feast of Tabernacles. And so they would look back and they would remember all that God had done, all that he had promised to do in the temple, in his protection, in his provision, all these things. Now the people of God, as I mentioned just a moment ago, had just returned from their own Exodus experience. They had just been released from Babylon and sent back to Jerusalem. So what's happening is God is giving them this reminder during the Feast of Tabernacles so that they can look back, they can remember what he has done, and then kind of compare to what's going on in their current situation. So as they celebrate this feast, as they remember, as they look back, some of them who are old enough to remember are looking at their current situation, they're looking at the past things that they celebrated as a nation, they're going... Something didn't quite add up here. We're supposed to be celebrating all of God's mighty works, all of his demonstrations of power and goodness, and yet look around us. I mean, the temple's not done. We're just returning exiles. We don't have much going on. So you can see where they would start to doubt, which contributed to this uh, kind of lethargy. They didn't want to really work hard because they weren't sure if God was even with them. Which is exactly why God delivers a message of saying, I am with you. My spirit will not depart from you. Keep going. The word of the Lord comes to the people first in the form of a question. Look at verse 3 of Haggai chapter 2. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? In keeping with this Feast of Tabernacles, God is calling them to look back and remember and compare. Now, you've probably heard me say a lot of times that comparison is very dangerous, and it can be. But God now is calling them to make a comparison. He said, look back. Those who can remember, you remember how it used to be? You remember the former glory of Solomon's temple? Look at this. How does this look in your eyes? He's asking them a question. He's trying to bring to mind and kind of stir their remembrance. He's bringing to light the problem of their sin, which is illustrated in the unfinished temple. They had neglected God. They hadn't pressed on with the work. And he's saying, look at this. this, Does this look right to you? This is what you're celebrating right now this time of year. Now compare it. Is this this how it ought to be? 
becomes of them a question to remind them that things are not the way that they ought to be. God has called them to repent. We saw this in the first chapter. And the people responded, right? We, and we saw that was a work of God's spirit, that he stirs them up to obedience and gives them what they need to be obedient to him. And so he reminds them of their sin, of their failure, but he doesn't leave them there. He immediately reaffirms the terms of his covenant with them. And before we read verse 4 again, which I want to show you, I just want to mention that God, in verse 4, is not redefining the covenant. He is not saying, okay, I made this covenant with my people, but that obviously didn't work, so I need to try something else. Let me think, let me think. Um, Okay, here, I'll, I'll try this. That is not what's happening. God is not redefining anything. He is reaffirming what is already in place. It's very common and very popular nowadays to redefine everything. Words and ideas that have had the same meaning for maybe hundreds of years are now being redefined to mean something else in order to fit someone's personal whatever. That's not what God is doing. He is not a God who changes. He's not a God who tries something. Did you know that God never tries anything? He never approaches something going, man, I hope this works out. No, never. So he's not doing anything new here. I just want you to know that he is reaffirming his covenant language to his people. Look at verse 4. He says, Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, be strong, Joshua, be strong. All you people of the land, declares the Lord, work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. You see those three commands that he gives in that verse? Be strong, work, and do not be afraid. Three commands that I think you and I could really take to heart. Now the previous reminder of sin was necessary to compel the people to repentance and to obedience. And now this reminder of God's covenant grace is necessary to bring to their minds God's covenant faithfulness that he will provide for them and to bring them hope for perseverance. You see, it's one thing to be motivated to obedience. It's one thing to have something happen that kind of kicks you into action and you, okay, I'll obey. But what about the next time? And what about the next day? What about the ongoing strength to persevere? That's what God is doing. He's reminding them of his presence. Not one time. This is not an inoculation of God, if you will. It is a reminder of his ongoing covenant faithfulness that will provide for his people and give them everything that they need. He's not doing anything new here. He is reminding them that even though they are sinful, the grace that he extends as a covenant-keeping God is greater than their sin. Again, a reminder that you and I need to know. Now this threefold repetition of the verb translated be strong is a mark that shifts away from uh, rebuke and correction in the message and it goes more to encouragement and affirmation. The command to be strong should have been really easily understood language for the people of Israel. 
over and over again in their history as they stand on the edge of a new chapter in their history, a new time, a new leader, whatever it was, God, through his leaders and through his people, affirmed to the people and challenged them to be strong. I want to just give you a few examples, and I'll tell you why I'm doing this. Moses says to the people as they're about to enter into the promised land, this is Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. The Lord himself spoke these words to Joshua as they're about to enter the promised land and take possession of it. Maybe some of you have this on a plaque in your entryway. Joshua 1.9, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you. Over and over again, God reaffirms his covenant by telling the people, straighten it up, man. Be strong, I'm with you. David Speaking to Solomon at the dedication of the temple, same time of year, in 1 Chronicles 28, says this, Be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. For the Lord God, even my God, is with you and he will not leave you or forsake you. Now the reason that I bring up all these texts, which seem to just be saying the exact same thing as Haggai 2 says, is because it is the same thing that Haggai 2 is saying. And I want you to understand this is not new. This is not revolutionary. This is God reaffirming the terms of his covenant to his people. This is how he has always operated. And you know what? It's how he always will operate with his people. The importance of looking back to see the way that God deals with his people, how he guides them, how he directs them, is that you and I now, this far removed from 522 a, B, whatever, A, B, C, D, before Christ. This far removed, you and I can have confidence that the Lord our God is with us wherever we go. This is not irrelevant. This is not random dates. This is not festivals and booths and moons. This is the faithfulness of God, and you need to know that. Because if you haven't already been through it, there is coming a time very quickly when you will be tempted to doubt the presence of God in your life to doubt his working, to doubt his faithfulness, and I don't want you to fall. I want you to stand. I want you to work, and I want you to have confidence in the faithfulness of God. That's why we need to know this, and that's why we need to understand this. This flashback reference to Egypt, do you see this? Look at the end of 4 into verse 5. I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. This reference that he makes back to the exodus from Egypt is meant to show the continuity of God's operation on behalf of elect Israel. He has always taken care of them. He has always caused them to stand, and God always will. These people now returned to Jerusalem and now engaged in the rebuilding work of the temple could have confidence that God is indeed with them that he will supply to them what they need. The same presence and power that rescued their ancestors out of Egypt and brought them all the way through into the promised land will be with these people. Which is God making reference back to Egypt to show them this is, this is all in fitting with my character. This is how I operate. Be strong. Know who I am. 
and take courage that I am with you. Now this restatement in verse 4 of the reality of God's spirit remaining among his people is very important, I think, for a couple of different reasons. When the prophet Ezekiel ministered in the nation of Israel, it was before the exile. So when we talked last week about where these books fit into the, into the Old Testament, we said that the prophets are generally divided pre-exile, a couple mid-exile, and post-exile. Remember that language? So Ezekiel is writing before the people are taken into captivity in Babylon. And he prophesied a warning <clears throat> that the time was coming when the Spirit of God, the glory of the Lord, would depart from the temple. A, a thought that would terrify the worshipers of God. You can read about this in Ezekiel chapter 10. Now, his vision, Ezekiel's prophecy about this was meant to be a warning. This would be a consequence if the people did not obey the covenant, if they did not worship God, if they did not honor him, if they did not do this. This was a covenant consequence that may happen in the future. And for these post-exilic Jews now who have come back after being in exile, the temple is not built. They have to wonder, was Ezekiel right? Is this what's happening? Did God's presence depart because of our unfaithfulness? And God comes to them with this message and says, I am with you. I have not departed from you. I will remain with you. What a blessing and what an encouragement for these people to know that God is with them. It's a really important reason why this is restated. Second thing, why I think this is so important is that it gives the people hope. It gives them hope to complete the work that God had called them to do. Now we saw last week that their obedience is ultimately motivated by the Spirit of God and by God saying, my Spirit is with you and will remain with you. This gives the people hope, not just for today, not just for this stone to be laid on the next stone, but for tomorrow and next week and next year and all the way into the future that the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that motivated their obedience, that gave them what they need to be faithful to the covenant, is going to stay with them. This is why it's restated in these terms. God is constantly reminding His people through His Word that He is with them, he will not leave them. His grace is greater than their sin. And he will ensure that his commandments are obeyed. What a blessing for these people. Now as we look at verses 6 through 9 of Haggai chapter 2, God is still speaking to the people and he tells them what is going to happen in the future regarding the nations and the heavens and the earth and all this kind of stuff that's going on here. It's just very interesting. And I think one of the reasons is if you are, if you are a Jewish person and you have returned from exile and you are now in Jerusalem, you're working on the temple, you've just celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, you've remembered Solomon's temple, and you read in the historical books about the unbelievable amount of gold and silver and timbers and precious stones and rocks that were necessary for the construction of the temple, you have to be looking around going, where's all this going to come from? I mean, they just returned from exile. It's not as if they were exactly loaded, to use modern terminology. That's not in the Bible. <clears throat> Right? And, and plus that, they'd been struggling with their crops. 
Their, their money was being put into bags with holes, as we saw last week. So you have to wonder, as an Israelite person who is coming back to work on the temple, and God's using this language of, oh, this temple's going to be way greater than the other one, and you're going, how in the world is this going to work? This is where they receive the promise of God's provision in verses 6 through 9. God himself, God himself is going to provide for what they needed, just as he will provide the strength through his spirit to enable their obedience so that they can actually work and do the things necessary, he will also provide the physical needs as well. And the imagery here, I just love it because it is so interesting. The imagery that is used in these verses that God, at some point in the future, right, when we read this language, verse 6, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, Okay, we don't know how much time is passing here. We're not sure what's going on. But it is some point in the future that God will shake the nations. He will rattle things up so that their resources, their treasures fall out. And he will reallocate those resources to provide for his people. And they will be used for his glory and his purposes. And as God does this, it is not as if he is robbing from the nations. He is not doing something he ought not to do. Because we read in verse 8, The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Everything in the world belongs to God. Did you know that? You and I don't own anything. This is why the Bible calls us stewards. We manage someone else's resources. Everything under the heavens belongs to God. Why? Because he made it. Psalm 24, 1. Remember this verse from the beginning of the psalm? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell therein, because he founded it upon the seas, he established it upon the waters. God has creator rights to every molecule in the universe. Job chapter 41, God is replying to Job and he says this in verse 11, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. You guys ever been through a time when you didn't quite have what you needed and you were wondering where stuff is going to come from to satisfy an obligation or whatever? God never has that experience. He is never lacking. He never wonders where things are going to come from to fulfill his purpose. He owns everything. He has creator rights over every piece of gold, every ounce of cedar, and he's promising his people that he will provide by plundering the nations and returning his own resources to his own people for his own purposes. This is just another demonstration of the covenant faithfulness of God. And this is nothing new. If you remember, the wealth of the Egyptians is what adorned the tabernacle when they built that in the wilderness. The, the plunder that David received from the nations around him was what helped to furnish the temple that Solomon built. In the same way, God is promising, I will take care of your needs, even if it means shaking the nations so that their resources are freed up to be used for my own purposes. You ever see your kids shake a piggy bank? 
sitting up there shaking it, trying to get stuff out of it. It's not exactly what's going on. God's not frustrated. He's not trying to get what's his, but he can't. But this imagery is so unique and so interesting that because God owns everything, because he has sovereign rights over all of creation, he does as he pleases. And he will provide for his people. Now Haggai's second message to the people closes in verse 9 by articulating two promises that are made to God's people by God. The first promise is that because of God's ability to provide for his people and to work in the hearts of nations and this kind of thing, his provision for the future temple will be greater. It will be greater than what they knew as beautiful and wonderful and glorious in the past. The second promise is that God himself will bring peace to his people, which, and we'll talk about this in just a minute, but for the people of God who had been through so much, so much displacement, trial, loss, homelessness, the idea of peace must have been probably more of a comfort to them than knowing that God would provide the physical stuff because they had so long been a nation of wandering. So, many people have struggled to understand exactly what is meant here by the latter temple. What is being spoken of here when this language is used? Now, I'm going to give you three interpretive options. There's probably more. But I'm going to give you three, and then I'm going to tell you what I think is going on here. First, this latter glory, this latter temple could be referring to the actual just physical temple that they were working on right now, the temple that would be completed about four years after this under Darius, the king of Persia, and under the supervision of Zerubbabel and Haggai and their ministries, the temple was completed. This is the same temple then that was destroyed in 70 AD. Okay, so this could be referring to that physical structure. Second, this could be more of a messianic promise. A prophecy that says Jesus is the fulfillment of this greater glory, this greater temple. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus refers to himself as something greater than the temple. And in John 2.19, Jesus talks about his future resurrection using temple language. So that is an option. And we certainly associate Jesus with glory, specifically greater glory. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about the greaterness of Jesus. I just made that word up. Now the third interpretive option is that this is referring to future or eschatological glory. Now don't get hung up on the word. Eschatology just refers to the end of all things, the end, what we call end times. So eschaton, end, last, ology, study of, it's the study of last things. So this could have an eye to way in the future. Well, who knows if it's way in the future or not, but that could be one interpretive option. Now, this view would say that at the end of all things, when God sets all things right, and when Jesus returns and inaugurates the new heavens and the new earth, then the glory of God will be more clearly and fully seen, greater than it has ever been seen because his people will be in his presence. So which one is the right one when we look at Haggai 2.9? What, what's it talking about? All of them. Right? 
This is, one, this is one reality that we're going to get in as we study our Bibles together, that there is often more than one correct interpretation of a text. This is a characteristic of messianic language and prophetic language that, yes, there is certainly immediate fulfillment. There is a near future fulfillment. There might be a far future fulfillment. And it is okay that we live and worship and serve together with differing ideas as to what's happening here. Okay, there can be more than one right thing happening at one time as long as those don't contradict. And I don't think any of those things contradict. Let's just use this as a test case. Let's use Haggai 2.9 as an example. Is this text referring to the immediate temple that they were working on? That they were just elbow deep in mortar? Yes, I think it is. Is this a messianic promise? Do we see Jesus describe himself in ways that he is undoubtedly the spiritual fulfillment of this physical reality? Yes, we see that clearly in the Gospels and... Isn't it true that the glory that God's people will experience and live in and participate in in the new heavens and the new earth will so far surpass what Solomon's puny little anthill of a temple was? Yes, of course it is. And I just want to encourage you. I'm going to give you a word of exhortation as your pastor. You ready for this? Some of you need to hear that you should not hold so tightly to your interpretation of end times things that you forget that there are immediate interpretations and messianic interpretations of a text. And some of you need to hear that it's not always a good idea to make Jesus the first and only interpretation of a text. There are other things going on. (coughs) And you know what? Those don't cancel each other out. We need to have patience and understanding as we live and worship together. We're not all going to agree on what's going on. We just won't. That's not going to happen until we're all in glory. Then there will be no question. But in the meantime, study, try to figure it out, but hold it loosely. We need to love each other through these things. And I just, using this as an example, I see that all three of these things are valid and legitimate interpretations of this text. Do you have a different idea? Great. We can talk about that. We can live together. We can love each other. We can serve each other. Don't let this be a division for you, okay? There's greater things at stake than your personal interpretation of things. Now, it's not that it's unimportant. Don't don't hear me say you shouldn't try to have a view or whatever. It is. But remember that because the word of God is living and active and because every child of God has the spirit of God dwelling in him, we will at times come to different understandings of things. And that's okay. That's okay. We can sharpen each other with those things. And what a great opportunity to be an encouragement to each other. Now, What do you think is meant at the end of verse 9? So the second promise that's made, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Well, I guess it understands, or it kind of depends on your understanding of the previous promise. What's the fulfillment? What's the latter glory? That would have a bearing on that, but I'm going to choose one of those things uh, so that you can be encouraged. I want you to leave here today 
Not questioning, not wondering, not unsure, but I want you to be sure, at least of one thing, and that is that our hope in God is not in vain because he will do what he has promised to do. So I'm going to take a future look at this text in an attempt to encourage your heart and to strengthen you as you go out into the world this week. But in order to understand the future, we have to know the past. So let me back up a couple thousand years. In the Garden of Eden, mankind fell into sin. And because of that sin, a separation was created between humankind and Almighty God. Okay, I think we're all on board with that. We, we know that's the case. That's what the scriptures tell us. That's our experience. And ever since then, every thrust of religion, every attempt by mankind to draw close to God has been an attempt to restore that relationship that was broken because of sin. Everybody is trying to work their way back to God, as it were. Because we don't like the separation. We don't like the feeling of being kind of at odds Married people, you know this. When you're in a spat with your spouse, not that that ever happens, but when that does happen, it's, it grates at you. You don't like it. You don't like when things are not at peace. And so all of humankind has been trying ever since the beginning to bring back that relationship, to get that relationship back that was broken, to once again enjoy being in the presence of God without shame, without guilt, without fear, Remember in the garden, Adam and Eve hid because they knew they were in trouble. They had done the wrong thing. Well, it's no mistake that when Jesus came into the world, his name was Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's because of Christ that you and I can experience the presence of of God, we are cleansed from our sin and we stand before God perfect in a judicial sense. Romans 5 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. However, <laughs> even with this great news and this wonderful reality dwelling, in the presence of God, is still a future hope, not a present reality. Because even though we have been cleansed from our sin, we still live in sin. It still affects us. It's still part of us. It's still like something sticky on your finger that you just can't get off. And because of that sin, we cannot dwell in the presence of God. So, where's the hope? The gospel is such good news because it does not only answer the immediate question that you and I have to have answered, but it gives us a future look to the enjoyment of the glory of God that will be unparalleled. I'm going to read to you a couple verses from Revelation chapter 21. And as I do, I just want you to listen. You can follow along if you want to, but Listen for similar language to Haggai chapter 2. Resources being brought in to the house of God, the dwelling of God with his people, his presence there. Listen for those things. Revelation 21, 2. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day or by night. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Just like Haggai chapter 2 said would happen. Your hope and my hope for peace with God, for dwelling in his presence, is not in a physical structure. It is not in a temple. And the thing that can transform Haggai chapter 2 from some kind of objective historical fact to a hope-giving, spiritual, forward-looking guarantee is that Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us, and he has purchased your ticket, as it were. All of this future glory, the presence of God, is made possible by him. So, here's where we end. If your heart longs for peace with God, if your heart longs to dwell in the presence of God, free from sin, free from weight, regret, it is possible. Not only possible, it's guaranteed by the blood of Jesus. Your hope and my hope is not in anything physical but it is only in Christ that we will experience his fullness of joy and everlasting peace. Think of all the songs we sang this morning. Like a river glorious is God's perfect peace. And he has promised to give us this peace and rest. So wherever you land on the interpretive spectrum here, know this this morning. Jesus purchased for you eternal peace and rest. And all you have to do is receive it. Let's pray.